if you're a live streamer, we would like to ask your help. If you, we've announced this two or three times, but if there's a glitch, you can go to the website. And there's a place on the uh, that says post your question here. Is that on the news page? Live stream page. Post your question here. And if there's a glitch, um, if it stream stops for 5, 10, 15 seconds or minutes, uh, then give us your name, where you live, when it stopped, when it started, and describe it briefly so that we can track this because we're trying to get all these glitches straightened out. And uh, we may be looking for a new uh, host uh, to do the live stream to straighten these things out. But we want to get it straightened out. We need that feedback from people, so I appreciate that. Also, this coming Sunday, we have our Christmas dinner for the congregation, and that will follow the morning worship service. Uh, the uh, church is providing the protein, and everybody else brings the carbohydrates, especially the sugar part, right? So we'll have the desserts and the sides provided by the congregation. There's sign-up out in the... Uh, conference room. This Sunday is also communion, and it is, uh, so we'll have communion Sunday morning, and then we'll have it again two weeks later on on Christmas Day. Uh, the schedule through December is normal. Uh, there are no, no changes, no additions or subtractions, so everything will go just, just great. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for you to be spiritually prepared. If necessary, confess sin so that we be forgiven and shift from walking according to the sin nature to uh, walking according to the Spirit. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a righteous God, a holy God, who has created all things. You have created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And Father, we are thankful for the privilege to gather together to worship you and to uh, be adopted into your royal family as your sons and daughters. And Father, we're thankful that we have uh, your word to study, to reveal to us the nature of creation, the nature of our salvation, the need for our salvation, and all that you have provided for us in Christ Jesus. And, Father, we are so thankful that you have blessed us so richly. And, Father, we pray that we would uh, respond to the, your, your word by, by obeying it and by putting it into practice in our lives, recognizing that we were called to that purpose and that we may glorify you in everything that we say and do. Now, Father, as we study your word, help us to understand this difficult concept that runs so contrary to our sin nature, this uh, issue of humility and submission to your authority as well as to other authorities. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we get into our topic tonight, I want to give you a little rundown on what took place at the pre-trib conference. 
Now let's see if I can do this. I did a minute. There we go. We can expand this a little bit so everybody can see it a little more. Uh, the conference, as usual, lasts for three days. Starts on Monday and goes till noon on Wednesday. Monday morning uh, opened up with a devotional by Dr. Ed Heinsen. That's always very, uh, very good and focused on the scripture. And then the first uh, paper was by uh, Dr. J.B. Hicks, and J.B. was in Houston for a number of years. He taught at College of Biblical Studies and was the academic dean there for a while. Since then, he's gone through too many ministries for me to count. Uh, he's pastored a couple of churches, and now he's got a, his own ministry operating out of Southern California. But he is a solid dispensational pre-trib and uh, presented a paper called One Minute After the Rapture. And most of us think about what's going to happen after the rapture in terms of what happens on the earth after the rapture. But he started off the first half talking about what will happen to believers one minute after the rapture. So that was about half the paper, and it traces through the uh, judgment seat of Christ, our presence in heaven, a uh, number of other things. And then he shifted gears to talk about what's going to happen on the earth it was not imaginative, it was biblical, talking about all the different things that will take place on the earth that the scripture reveals that take that happen as a result of the tribulation. In heaven, he talks about um, the judgment seat of Christ. He talked about worshiping before the throne of God, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and uh, things of that nature. So that was a, a good paper, a tr- great summary of of rapture passages and other passages talking about what happens at that time. A second paper that morning was by David Mappis. It's an unusual uh, spelling for the last name, but it's pronounced Mappis. I enjoyed getting to know him. Uh, Pastor Roseland has taken a number of courses with him in his Ph.D. program at Baptist Bible Seminary. He's got some tremendous insights because previously he was a professor of theology at Cedarville uh, University, which is a has been a traditional conservative uh, conservative Baptist, or excuse me, regular Baptist uh, university. Dan Ingram went there for his undergraduate work, uh, as well as a few others. But they went through a real battle for orthodox theology. And he was one of the casualties as the liberals took over. And the, uh, he was telling me this at lunch the other day. And then, and it wasn't until the, a couple of conservatives on the board realized what had been happening. They called a board meeting and after a couple of days of debates, uh, they voted by one vote to return to the traditional historical position of the school. Those kinds of things don't happen too often. Usually we lose. But he was one of the casualties and left there and went to another, went to Liberty for a year and then went to Baptist Bible Seminary where Mike Stallard was the head of the uh, PhD program and uh, head of the graduate school there. Uh, it was a great paper. It says a biblical and theological discussion of traditional dispensational premillennialism. He really focused on hermeneutics. And if there was one thread through all of these papers that was really excellent and informative, it was on hermeneutics. And just a reminder of what it means to literally, to consistently, literally interpret the scripture and what the challenges and issues are today 
coming from within the camp of the historically conservative seminaries. And if that's, if one thing came through in all of these discussions, it is that the schools, if you have a little understanding of church history, by 18, between 1850 and 1870, all of the, uh, religious schools, the all of the uh, seminaries or universities in Germany went liberal, rejected the truth. During that period of time, American churches were sending their boys back to Europe for the prestigious degrees at the various universities in Germany and then later in Britain, France as well. And they brought back these heretical, what we now know as liberal 19th century theology. This they began to teach in their pulpits and began to teach in the sem- from the seminary um, lecterns that they uh, had, the chairs of theology that they were appointed to. And this is what turned all the major denominations in the, in the United States liberal. And cause, and was the, called the modernist liberal, or excuse me, the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And it really culminated in, by 1927 when the conservative seminary at, uh, Presbyterian seminary at Princeton was turned and the board of directors, uh, voted to shift their doctrinal statement. And that was sort of the end. But as some of us have observed and presciently forecast in the late 80s, we're in another fundamentalist modernist controversy. What happened in the in the teens and 20s is with the rise of liberalism and as the conservatives split off, they founded new schools. In the late 19th century, there were the Bible institutes like Moody and uh, uh, the... Um, Biola in Southern California, a number of others, as well as seminaries like Dallas Theological Seminary. There was the rise of the of the conservative Baptist uh, denomination, and uh, Bob Thiem's father-in-law was one of the three founders of the conservative Baptist denomination. And uh, so Western Conservative was founded in that period and several others. Well, all of these schools that we have looked to for conservative, Bible-based teaching have drifted now, and we have entered into a second phase of the modernist fundamentalist controversy. But the problem is the leaders of the so-called fundamentalist evangelical, conservative evangelical movement are, have now been turned to the dark side. And we have very few people who are willing to put forth the clarion call that we need to wake up. We have lost another battle. And um, so that came through loud and clear, and we're losing it in all of these different uh, different areas. Uh, Gary Grimacki, whose uh, father taught Dan Ingram Greek at Cedarville College, uh, is a uh, professor at... Uh, Baptist Bible Seminary gave a paper on the times of the Gentiles, which was absolutely excellent. He began with Daniel, and he had a paper that went on for over 30 pages that listed every major date and event in the history of the times of the Gentiles. 
And it may have been boring to some people, but for a pastor to have that kind of chronology summarized in one paper is just absolute gold. And he did an excellent job with that. Then um, Soren Kern spoke at 3.15. Soren Kern is a, he's an evangelical Christian. He's originally from Germany, I believe. I think he lives in Spain, between Spain and the United States now. He writes for Gatestone Institute. If you're not reading Gatestone Institute, you ought to read Gatestone Institute. But if you're not, don't know how to use a faith rest drill, it will give you nightmares at night. And it will give you insight into what is really going on in Europe, in Germany, in France, in England. And they have numerous writers that have been talking about what's happening with Islam, what's happening with the refugees and the refugee crisis, and the fact that you have places like Sweden, which is uh, in Europe, it has the highest, I mean, in, in exponentially the highest uh incidence of rape in Europe, and it is about, if, if it's stranger rape, that is where the two people don't know each other, then it is almost 100% Muslim on ethnic suite, and they are not being, uh, they're not being um, taken to court, they're not being uh, sent to jail, nothing is being done. And it is, and, and because of political correctness, nobody wants to address it. It's happening now uh, across Europe. But anyway, Soren goes through all of this. I'm going to take his message and the message from Bill Koenig, which was the last message, which was uh, Bill is a, um, he went on the schedule, but he replaced uh, some Dave Hawking. Um, but he has, he's a White House correspondent, it's very conservative. He has a website uh, that I can't remember right now, but he is uh, he he basically gave an hour talk on what's happening in Washington D.C. since November the eighth. It's really interesting. You're not going. You don't get this kind of insight in any news organization, and um, and he just says we have to really be in prayer because it's a battle royal. It is going to be. Uh, you think there's been a battle the last eight years, it is going to get exponentially higher, and the stakes are higher. But he get, had uh, really good in, insights on what the people that uh, Trump has appointed or wants to appoint to the cabinet and other positions, and it was, it was really good. So I'm taking both of those messages. Bruce is going to put them on one DVD, and we're going to have those at church Sunday so that everybody can get those and go home and watch them, and that's going to be your current event education. Uh, watch Soren Kern first so that you understand the horrors that are going on in Europe, and then watch Koenig because that will lift you up and give you hope. Okay, back to the schedule. Soren Kern was in the afternoon that night. We had a banquet. The speaker was a pastor from Compass uh, Compass Church. I believe it was Compass Church. It was a, a it was a Calvary Church, but that wasn't Compass Church. Okay, it was Cal, a Calvary Church, Calvary Church in Southern California, on the pulpit and why the rapture must be found in it. Very good, very good uh, motivational sermon. Then Tuesday morning, two sessions with Dr. Abner Chow Young, 35-year-old 
uh, American Chinese young man who speaks like a machine gun. Do you think Arnold Fruchtenbaum speaks fast? Arnold is slow. Somebody commented to me that I never, I thought you could get a lot of material into an hour. You're nothing compared to Abner. I said, yeah. I said, don't forget Bob Thiem when he was 35 years old was called Rapid Robert. Uh, when you're 35 years old, you can talk fast and think fast and you can listen fast. That's the key. And he gave two excellent presentations on the consistent use of grammatical historical hermeneutic through the Old Testament that it's, I mean, the papers are dense. It's going to take a lot of time to work through, but he has brilliant insights. The guy is uh, incredible. His grasp, the total grasp of Scripture is tremendous. I'm hoping to get him as a speaker for uh, the Chafer Conference in March of 2018. Uh, then in the afternoon, Michael Rydelnik gave a little bit of his testimony, but he gave a tremendous um, presentation and summation of things in his book, The Messianic Hope, and uh, you're going to want to see that. And then Dr. David Farnell, who will be one of the two keynote speakers. We have we have two keynote speakers for the Chafer Conference in March. Uh, Farnell will be talking about the battle for the Bible, the battle for inerrancy. And, um, and then uh, Wayne House is going to speak on hermeneutics. And they, each of them will have four sessions. Andy Woods is going to talk about uh, hermeneutics and genre and the problems there. David uh, Roseland is going to talk about um, another aspect of uh, church history in the 19th century, the relation of Scottish common sense realism and Princetonian theology. Now, the importance of that is Princetonian theology is where the doctrine of inspiration and errancy in contrast to liberalism was really structured, systematized, and formulated. But the the other side says, no, they didn't get it from the Bible. They got it from common sense philosophy. And so it's just philosophical. It's not biblical. And David will show that what made Scottish common sense realism accurate was the heavy influence of the Bible in, in those uh, philosophers' backgrounds. So he's done some excellent work there. And uh, then there's a couple of other papers that are going to be given. So Farnell was really good. One uh, guy I went through seminary with who had never been to pre-trib until last year, um, I was talking to him, and I wasn't sure where he was on a lot of issues. I said, well, what did you think of Farnell? He said, I wanted to hear, hear the rest of the 336 slides that he had. You think, I come up here and rip through a lot of slides sometime. Um, but um, this guy said, I want to hear him. I told him about the Chafer Conference, and he'll probably come. So, uh, And then that night, uh, Paul Wilkinson and Tommy did an analysis for this uh, uh, horrible video that came out called uh, Left Behind or Led Astray. And it's filled with uh, ad hominem arguments, wrong historical facts, things of that nature. So if you're really getting into... Uh, debates with people over the rapture. That's going to have a lot of great information in it. Uh, there was a paper by a young man in his uh, mid to late 30s who finished his Ph.D. work at Southeastern Baptist Seminary, gave his uh, a summary of the, what, he, what he did on the day of the Lord. And it was different. A lot of people were like, 
Ask Bill Wright. It's like, do, do you, what do you think about what he said? I said, I don't know. I got to read the 400 page dissertation to really think it through. He had, you know, some different things to say. And then uh, that was it. So that was the conference and it went, uh, went, went really well. So, um, I don't know what, what's coming next year, but the dates next year will be December 4th through 6th. And this, it's a great conference. If you enjoy coming to the Chafer Conference and learning there, you would love going to the pre-trib conference. It's uh, just a lot of great information, great fellowship with other believers, and uh, it's going to continue. So that was, that was that. Now I have to figure out how to shrink this back to reality. There we go. Okay, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Looking at the servant's humility. The servant's humility. Now, let's just review a little bit. I've got about 49 slides I'm going to rip through. Some of this I can go fairly fast. If we don't finish, then it'll be a two-parter. As I said last week, Philippians 2 is one of my favorite passages, and it's probably the most significant passage on the person of Christ in the New Testament. But what it emphasizes at its very core is the servant's humility. It has two sections, 5 through 8, deal with the servant's humility. 9 through 11 deal with the servant's exaltation. So we have the servant's humility and then the servant's exaltation. And that really summarizes what uh, what Peter is saying in all of these examples of submission to authority is that when you submit to an earthly authority, you are submitting to your heavenly father's authority. And those who submit to the authority of God, God will exalt. This is summarized at the end of First Peter, in First Peter 5, uh, that humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. The path to exaltation, the path to approbation, the path to recognition, the path to eternal positions of authority is through humility in this life to authorities. So we see in First Peter his argument is that Christ left us an example. He's the innocent lamb of God without spot or blemish who is our redemption, pays the price for our sins. He suffered for us, leaving us an example. We are to follow in that example. He was sinless. He was guiltless. He did not deserve to go to the cross. He did not deserve to be arrested or tried or beaten or whipped or uh, executed. But he did that in submission to the Father's will so that he could bear our sins on the cross for the purpose that we might live for righteousness. That introduces the idea of humility. Last time I looked at Numbers 12.3, that Moses was the most humble man. The Hebrew word is on the left, meaning hum, anav, meaning humble or weak. It's translated into Greek with the word praus. Now, that word is important because it's used by Jesus to refer to himself as gentle and lowly, praus and tapinas. So we see those two words linked by Jesus to describe his humility. 
The word typhanos is the word that shows up in Philippians 2. It's the noun form. The verb form is used here in Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. And what we'll see is the participle translated became obedient is a participle of means. How did he humble himself? How was he able to show humility? He humbled himself by being obedient. That's what humility is. It is authority orientation. It is submission to the authority of even if that authority is wrong, even if that authority for a serv- for a slave is harsh. It is submission to that authority that is the essence of humility. So last time I looked at the setup in Philippians 2, where Paul says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, those are four realities. I charted this for us today so we can understand it better. Three realities that we have in, or four realities that we have in Christ. Because of those realities, Paul is able to command us, fulfill my joy, and then he lists several things by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. That word like-minded is the same word that's used in Philippians 5.8 in Paul's command to be or to have the same mind as Christ. We're to think like Christ. That means the re- it's not hard for us to humble ourselves and submit to one another if we're like-minded. It's carnality that causes the problem. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. And there we see uh, the adjectival form here of typanos, which was the verb. Typanao is the, I mean, typanos is the noun. Typanao is the verb to be humble. And this is the quality or state of humility uh, in Greek, I pointed this out last time, in Greek culture from 5th, sec- 5th century B.C. on, this was never a positive value. This was never a virtue in Greek thought. It, it, this is not, you were to assert yourself. But in Christianity, this word is taken over to define the essence of Christ in hypostatic union, his character. But it's not just in hypostatic union. It's also in terms of his his deity. He's in submission to the Father. And so from the time of Christ on, this word is no longer used as a negative in Greek literature. Language was transformed by the incarnation of the logos, the word of God. So here's a little chart I put together to help us think it through. In the first two verses, Philippians 2, 1 and 2, we're told that in Christ we have four things. We have encouragement, we have comfort, we have fellowship, and affection and mercy. That's what we have in Christ. And as a result of that, Paul says we are to do certain things. If these are true, and they are because they're all first-class conditions, then we are to do these five things. We're to make his joy complete. That's an experiential concept. He had, Paul, like all of us, if we're focused on God and we have, we share the happiness of God. 
But at another level, we experience joy and exultation when we see people trust Christ as Savior and they're saved, when we see them grow and mature in the spiritual life, and we see them uh, living out the spiritual values, and that gives us a greater joy. He goes on to say, then, we're to have the same mind. That's the key phrase. We're to think and have the same attitude. But it's not something we develop autonomously. You, you see these liberal Christians come along, especially their reaction in the latest election, and they've created the, a, an autonomous mindset that's based on a liberal form of pseudo-compassion for the refugees and the poor and the disenfranchised and everything else. It's not a unity of mind based on Scripture, we are to have a unity of faith according to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we have one faith, and that's the content of faith, and they have a false faith. The same mind is the mindset of Christ based on the Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 2.16. We have the mind of Christ. We are to also have the same love, that is a biblical love, a Christ-centered love, United, not untied, little typo there, united in spirit and having one purpose. Having said that, then in verse 5, Paul says, have this same attitude or thinking which was also in Christ. Now, the problem with liberalism is they create an idolatrous or a pseudo-Christ a Christ based on liberalism's values of pseudo-compassion and pseudo-love and pseudo-care for people, not on a biblical sense of love and compassion and care. And so they want to unite the church around this false Christ, this false Jesus, this idolatrous Jesus that is the manufactured image of their carnal minds. But to understand the thinking and the attitude of Jesus, we have to get into the text of Scripture, and we have to believe it first and foremost. And in liberalism, they doubt that, you know, in extreme liberalism, they doubt that 90% of the words that are attributed to Jesus were ever spoken by Jesus or believed by Jesus. They were invented by the second century church in their views. And that's what undergirds uh, this liberal thinking. They've reinvented Jesus according to their own image. But we have to get into the text. We have to get into the details of the text. And if we believe that every jot and tittle is going to be fulfilled, then we have to understand the jots and the tittles. That means we have to get into the details of the text. That's why it's very boring for some people when they listen to someone like me when I dig down into the details of the text But the details of the text are what tell us what is really going on, what is really being said, and helps us understand it. And if we just fly at the surface level of the text, often we will make mistakes and misunderstand what the Word says. So to understand the thinking of Jesus, we have to understand the Word of Jesus. The, The living Word gave us the written Word, and it's His mind. So that's why we study the Word. Now, when we get into the first part of this great section from 5 through 11, the first part, which is really 5 through 8, is the servant's humility. But that's described mostly in 6, 7, and 8. 5 just says, 
let this mind be in you. So the key verse we're looking at is 2.8 because it tells us that humility is related to obedience, that if you want to be humble, then you have to be obedient, obedient to the government, obedient to to the master for the slave, obedient to the husband for the wife, obedient to the parents for the children. Well, the husband gets off scot-free. No, he has to be obedient to God. He's answerable to God for the welfare of the family. So in verses 5 through 8, to summarize it and read through it, let this mind or this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who? Now we have to understand who Jesus is. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it to be consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's an awkward translation. We'll have to understand that. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. In the Greek, it's the word slave. See, that's the thread we're following from First Peter two, where the slave is to be obedient to the father. And then the four or five verse section that Paul develops on Christ is all are. It's filled with quotations and allusions to Isaiah 53, which is talking about the Messiah as the servant, the slave of Yahweh. So what ties these passages together is this concept of being a servant of God, a slave of God, and being obedient to God. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, we don't can't understand he humbled himself unless we understand who the he refers to and who the himself refers to. That refers to Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Why is this important to understand that Jesus is the God-man. And this seems like very dense theology for a lot of people, but it's very practical because the whole point of here is to teach us how to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And to do that, we need to understand the intricacies of the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity, that they're equal in person, but they they have different roles. And in their roles, they are submissive to one another. But it doesn't mean that if the son is being submissive to the father, that he's less equal than the father or any less God than the father. And human viewpoint today says that if a woman is obedient to a man, then that means she's less equal than the man. And that doesn't follow biblically. In fact, if they're true, if the feminist dogma is true, then God is false. If the feminist dogma is not true, then it's blasphemy of the highest order. And that is the bedrock foundation of modern feminism, that submission to a man is means that the woman is less than the man. And that has theological implications that are purely heretical and blasphemous. And yet today, more and more young women in our culture are choosing feminist options, the results. They may not understand the philosophical, theological underpinnings, but they would, rather than getting married and focusing on motherhood and having children and raising them to the glory of God for an eternal spiritual impact, They don't want to have children, 
and they want to have a career. And they're selling their inheritance like Esau did for a mess of pottage. And the men are going right along with it because they've both been brainwashed by this modern culture and this modern society, so which is based on totally anti-biblical uh, values. So we have to renovate our thinking completely in or, and about relationships and authority and submission in order to change the way we think and the way we live. So it starts off in verse 5, have, Paul says, have this same mental attitude in you. And the Greek word there is a present active imperative. Present active imperative means this is the standard operating procedure for the way you think in the Christian life. This is something that should characterize you day in and day out. Every morning, every afternoon, every evening, you think and you breathe and like this, like Jesus did. Have this attitude in you which was in Christ Jesus. Now, the Greek word phroneo has the idea of thinking and reasoning, or it talks about a mental attitude. Now, that's important because so many people want to feel about Christianity. They want to, oh, they want to emote about Jesus. They don't know enough Bible to know who Jesus is biblically, but they're in love with this this image that their emotions have generated in their soul and they're bowing down and worshiping this idol of Jesus rather than the biblical Jesus. And so they don't understand that the spiritual life is not based on emotion. It's based on reason, on thought, based on what is comes out of the communication of the Scripture. So we're to have this model our thinking after Jesus. He's the standard not the pastor, not the spiritual leader, not the missionary. It's focusing on Jesus. We have to know Jesus. Philippians 2.6 carries this idea on. It says, who? And then it introduces a phrase that starts with that word, although. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now, there's a lot of debate over this verse. Almost every word has been debated and discussed and written about ad infinitum for the last 200 years in the battles that go on between biblical conservative theology and liberalism, and especially when it comes to the battles that have taken place between uh, feminist Christians and traditional biblical Christians. That phrase, although he existed, is based on a participle that is called a concessive participle. Now, as soon as I mention grammar, some people just start taking a vacation to Hawaii. But it's important to understand what these terms mean because thoughts are communicated and organized by grammar. A concessive participle indicates a state of affairs that might have been expected to rule out what is described in the main clause. In other words, his existence in the form of God would be expected to cancel what's in the main clause, which is equality with God. Okay? So that's, that's the idea here. So this word huparko is an interesting word because that's the word for existence 
And it doesn't indicate eternality. You get that from the context. But it does indicate a prior existence. So although he existed before his humanity in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as as something to be grasped. Now, in the New King James, it translates it, who did not consider it robbery. And that really is a fuzzy idea, but we have to. Uh, I think it's 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 the idea that's in the King James uh, New American Standard. It translates it better. He didn't regard it equality. The robbery is stealing the essence of God, okay, or grasping after it. But regarding equality with God is a better a better thing. But what does it mean that he existed in the form of God? Now we think of form to mean shape. You look at the, a chair or this table down in front of the, podi, the pulpit or the pulpit. What's the form of the pulpit? We think of form as describing physical shape. That's how we use it most of the time. Okay? But God doesn't have a physical shape. God is spirit. Okay? So he doesn't have a necessarily a physical shape. So what does this word mean? And this is the word morphe. When we talk about the forms of words, we talk about their morphology, the form of the word. Is it a present active indicative or is it aorist active indicative? What's the form of the word? What's its morphology? So this word means and is translated with phrases like form or outward appearance. That's where we would think about it in terms of shape, um, shape or expression. And it, but it's also used to describe the nature or essence of something. Now, what I just said is what's debated. There's a huge debate over this. And I found a great quote in a commentary that I'm going to go through here because it sort of summarizes the essence of this debate. It's from a contemporary commentary by Moses Silva, who's a professor who used to be at Westminster Theological Seminary in the uh, uh, biblical uh, biblical exegetic the biblical exegetical commentary on the New Testament on Philippians two six, and he says much of the debate centers on this first line, although he existed in the form of God particularly the force of the word form. If we stress the classical usage of this term, the technical sense of Aristotelian philosophy suggests itself. Now, I just lost everybody. They heard Aristotle and they went, "Mm, let's go on vacation again. Now, we're going to get a lesson in, in Aristotelian philosophy. Aristotle said that every object is made up of two, two basic things. That's what he talks about. Uh, In here, it talks about attributes and essence. The attributes are its shape, its color, a number of other physical descriptors, tall, short, wide, narrow, black, green, yellow, cold, hot, yellow, green. All of those things are attributes. The essence of something you can't see. You see a table, but what you perceive in Aristotle's thinking are the attributes, its color, its height, its width, its shape. Those are just attributes. You don't see the essence of a thing. And in 
Platonic philosophy, the essence of a chair was chairness. And so you can look at it, think about a metal folding chair that you sat on in the lunchroom in, in high school in the cafeteria. And then you think about a leather upholstered chair recliner that costs about $2,000. They both look very, very different, but they both share the concept of being a chair. You can look at a fold-out, you know, one of those canvas fold-out chairs you take camping or on a picnic. That looks very different from either of the first two illustrations I gave you, but they all share something in common. So when I say chair, you have an idea of what chairness is in your head. Well, for Plato, that is the essence of the thing. That's its morphe. But see, that was typical of philosophical language in the 5th century B.C. That's like saying that's the way... Charity was used for love when the new, I mean, when the King James Bible was translated. But now we usually update the language to love. The, the, the meaning of the words changed. So by the time you get to the first century, people aren't using fifth century BC definitions for words. Although the, the main idea of this was still used that way. But not always. That's the debate. So, Morphe, he goes on to say here, Morphe is, although not equivalent to usia, usia is the Greek word for essence or being. So you can't say that Morphe means essence. Although the bottom line on what everybody says, it's pretty close to that. But it's not a one-to-one equivalent of usia. But um, although not equivalent to usia, he says it speaks of essential or characteristic attributes, and thus is to be distinguished from schema, which is the external um, changeable fashion. Okay, he goes on to say, in a valuable excursus, that's an additional uh, development uh, in his writings, um, J.B. Lightfoot. Now, these guys, I love going back and reading the, 19th, the conservative 19th century scholars because these guys were really educated. They had to learn Greek in a classroom where it was taught to them in Latin. And they had to take their Greek exams in Latin. That's a real education. You had to think in different languages to learn different languages. And these guys knew more about Greek and Roman culture and history and language before they went to university than 99.99% of, col- of master's students do in our culture. We're uneducated. We're trained a lot, but we're not educated. Education comes from learning the arts. It doesn't come from learning how to do skillful things like engineering and science. You're trained, you're skilled, but that doesn't mean you're educated in the classic sense of the word educated. These guys were educated. Before before they were eight years from seminary, they knew more than PhDs from seminary know today. That's why it's so good to go back and read them on the languages is because they really knew the languages. They had been studying Greek and, and Latin, and in some cases Hebrew, since they were seven or eight or nine years old. We get guys who go to seminary when they're 30 years old and they start studying Greek. They're never going to have the, 
the, the depth of knowledge and perception. So we go back to these guys. Lightfoot was one of the top Greek scholars in England in the latter part of the 1800s and fairly conservative considering what was happening. So he argued along these basic lines, and uh, and so did a guy named uh, R.C. Trench in a book called Synonyms of the Greek New Testament, which is something every Greek student, every pastor ought to have on his shelf. But it's in the 19th century, so most guys don't even learn about it today. It's really tragic. And then, uh, and, and then, um, Silva goes on to say, though form is not the same idea as nature. Morphe isn't the same as phusis. Form, form is not the same as nature or essence. Yet the possession of form involves participation in the essence also. For form implies not the external accidents, height, width, color, things like that but the essential attributes. Similar to this, though not so decisive, are the expressions used elsewhere of the divinity of sun. So what he lists is some other passages to show when you compare this with other passages, comparing Scripture with Scripture, you see things like this. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says that Christ, is, who is the image of God, that means he is the exact representation of God. Colossians 1.15, he's the image of of the invisible God. The, you see Christ, you see God the Father. Hebrews 1.3, he's the character, he's the impressed image of his person. Okay, talking about essence, not that they're identical person. So Philippians 2.6 says, although he existed previously, we could... Um, expanded a little bit like that to get a better understanding, although he existed previously in the form. Another way that we can translate the word form is mode of existence. Now, think about it this way. If Jesus existed in the mode of existence of the Father, can a creature exist in the mode of existence of the Father? Not at all. So, therefore, it has to mean by simple context discussion the word morphe has to refer to something, although it's not a synonym for essence, that's basically what it's talking about. So it's saying that Jesus did not regard. This is the word hegeomai. It's an accounting term, and it has to do with considering, adding things up. Uh, it talks about an intellectual process. Notice we're to think like Jesus, not emote like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He thought. So it emphasizes that the relationship with God is based, it doesn't exclude emotion, but it puts emotion in the trunk. And the engine that drives the car is thought. And emotion follows along behind. But what we have today is most people want to put emotion under the hood and put thinking back in the back, close and lock the trunk. That's mysticism. So Jesus is thinking about his relationship with God. He knows he is equal with God, but he doesn't consider that something to be grasped. Now, you'll get a surprise when we get to that word. So to paraphrase this or to give it an expanded translation, who, talking about Jesus Christ, 
although he eternally existed, existed with identical essence to God. Now, we can say that because in the context, in verse uh, verse 6, it's talking about he was in the form of God, and that's where the word's debated. But then it's contrasted with being equal with God, later in verse 6, who considered it robbery to be equal with God, or it's compared, rather, that'd be the better word. Who, the form of God is compared with being equal with God. And then it's contrasted in verse 7 with taking on the form, that's the same word, morphe, the form of a bondservant. So being in the form of God is contrasted with being in the form of a slave and also with the likeness of men. So context tells us it's really talking about the nature or essence of God, not the person of God. He's not identical to the person of God. He's distinct from the Father. So here's your thought question. Wake up a little bit. Get those dendrites thinking a minute. When it says, who, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, yet he did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. Is that thinking occurring after hypostatic union or before hypostatic union? Is that thinking his mental attitude as God, part of his deity, or his humanity? Nope. It's grammar. It's deity. See, it, it's although he eternally existed of God, he didn't think while he as God before hypostatic union that holding on to deity was something to be grasped. So it's not till the next verse that he becomes a man. So you have to think this through. See, we're to be Christ-like and emulate the same thoughts as Christ who is God. We emulate that thinking. We can't be perfect. We're not going to be omniscient. But we emulate that thinking. He wasn't, he had every right to say, I'm God and I'm going to hold on to it. And I'm not going to let it go. And he was saying that as God. And if he as God has every right to be treated as God, and yet he says, I'm not going to assert my rights, then we who are creatures who have no right to be treated as God have no right to assert our own self-deity. That's the point. So in verse 6 we read, although he existed in the form of God or the nature or essence of God, he did not regard that equality with God a thing to be grasped. And it's interesting, the, the word that's used there for equal in the Greek, to be equal with God uses the word isa in the Greek, rather than the form ison. Isa refers to attributes. Ison would say he's the same person, according to Lightfoot. So Isa indicates that he's equal in essence, nature, attributes. They share the same sovereignty, justice, righteousness, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotent, omnipresence, immutable, and veracity. But he's not the same person. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father, but the Son is equal to the... The Father is equal to the Son in essence, and the Son is equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit in essence. Now, he doesn't regard this equality with God something to be grasped. Now, this is a noun form of a Greek verb harpazo. 
Anybody remember why harpazo is such an interesting word? Because you and I hopefully will be harpazoed. That the Lord will return in the clouds and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be harpazoed. We will be, how Lindsay called it, the great snatch. We will be caught up. We will be snatched. We will be ripped out of this existence, okay? So harpagmas is the noun. It means a violent seizure of property, such as robbery. That's why the old King James translated it as robbery. Uh, it's equivalent to the word harpagma, which means something which can which somebody can claim or assert a title by gri- gra- grasping or gripping. And that's more the idea here is Jesus is not going to assert his deity to the exclusion of entering into human history and becoming a man. He's not going to say, I'm God, I have every right to be God, I'm going to assert my deity, I'm not going to become a man. He doesn't do that. He's not going to say, like the point for this, you're a slave. You're not going to say, I'm created in the image of God and you can't tell me what to do. As a wife, you're not going to say, I'm an equal partner in this marriage and I am a woman. I have equal rights and I'm not going to do what you say. As a child, you're not going to say, I am created in the image of God and you're my parent. You're no better or worse than I am. Screw you. I'm not going to listen to you. That's how it works, isn't it? See, Jesus doesn't say that to the Father. That's what submission is. That's what obedience is. So he he doesn't think that his that he is God, but it's not something to be held on to. Many people have used the illustration with with Adam and Eve. Satan said, "See the fruit? Looks good, doesn't it? God didn't want you to eat it, not because uh, uh, of any other reason other than He didn't want you to be like Him." And Eve goes, I want to be like him, and grabs deity. That's the idea. Jesus has it, but doesn't grab it. Eve and Adam didn't have it and grabbed it. That's the difference. So, who that is the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally eternally existed with identical essence to God the Father, yet he did not think that with, that equality with God was a claim to be asserted. But what did he do? Instead, he emptied himself. So now we're going to have a contrast. But he emptied himself, whether in then asserting his right to be worshipped as God, he said, no, I'm going to empty myself. Now, this is another huge debate. It's the verb kanao, kanao, and the, the noun is kenosis, and you probably heard somebody talk about the kenosis problem, and you couldn't explain it if you had to, and that's okay. Uh, because the way it's translated is emptied himself, it's, it was understood by liberals to mean he, he gave up his deity. Now you'll hear some people say that the way they'll translate this is Jesus willingly restricted the independent use of his attributes. Walvoord used that definition. A lot of people use that definition. I was reading that one day and I said, now I got a problem with that. Because that presupposes that Jesus could independently use his attributes of the Father before the Incarnation. Did Jesus ever independently use his attributes in eternity past? He never operated independently of the Father. 
They're totally unified. So the word independently in there is is not necessary, and it implies something that is wrong. Jesus willingly gives up the use of his divine attributes for the sake of becoming a servant to man. That doesn't mean he got rid of them. He just doesn't use them other than in relation to the Father's plan when he is uh, giving evidence of his deity, for when he changes the water into wine. He's not solving a personal problem. He is demonstrating he's the creator, and he can make wine faster than the than, than the uh, winemakers. They turn water into wine all the time. It takes them a couple of years. Jesus did it in a split second. He turned water into wine. Okay? So, how did he empty himself? That's the participle. Grammar is very important to understand all this. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. He doesn't em- empty himself by giving up deity. He emptied himself by adding humanity to his nature. So that's what we see here. He emptied himself by receiving the form of a servant, which means he's adding, he's not restricting, he's not uh, giving up, he's not subtracting. He is adding humanity to his deity. He's not getting rid of his deity. He is just limiting its use during his humanity to fulfill the Father's plan. So that's the idea. Kana'o uh, means to make empty. In other words, he, he, it's, it's being used figuratively here. It's not used literally. And he takes on the form of a bondservant, which is the same thing. He becomes essentially a slave. And he's a picture of that to mankind. And he's made in the likeness of men. And the verb there in the Greek means that now something new comes into existence. It's genomai. It's, it's not something stated that it exists, but it comes into existence. And so this is how he empties himself, by taking the form of a bondservant and by coming into existence something new in the likeness of men. So he emptied himself by means of taking the form of a servant, and by means of coming into existence in the physical form of a man, so that now he is found in appearance as a man. Being found in appearance as a man, and this doesn't mean it's just this docetic idea. You know what I mean by docetism? That's it. It was just a phantasm. He just looked like a man. He wasn't physically there. No, he's physically there. All these other words that are used for likeness, schema, and form, they all indicate that he is physically a man. And so he is found in appearance here as a man. And as a human being now, he humbles himself. He humbled himself before as God by not asserting his deity. Now he humbles himself in his humanity by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus demonstrates humility in both his deity before hypostatic union and from his humanity after hypostatic union. And it shows that the essence of humility is to be in proper relationship to authority. 
Being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the issue. All right. We've gotten the main idea here. I want to come back one more time and look at the rest of verse 8, and then we'll get into um, 9, 10, and 11 related to the exaltation of the servant. Not bad. I did almost 40 of 46 slides. So we'll come back next time, review it a little more, because this isn't easy, summarize it, uh, syncretize it so that we can understand it, synthesize it, I mean, so that we can understand it a little better, that Jesus, who is God, doesn't say, hey, I'm God. I'm not going to go down there with those scuzzy little human beings. He's willing to take on the form of a human being and be a servant and live with all these sinners in order to fulfill the Father's plan. So he humbles himself by being obedient to God. And taking on the form, in other, in, instead of wearing his divine clothes, he's going to wear the beggar's clothes and die on the cross for us. That's what humility is. Father, thank you for this opportunity to work through this passage, to understand it, to have our our understanding of who Jesus is uh, shaped and changed and refined, realizing what he did on the cross. We understand what he did in terms of dying for us. But Peter says this is an example to us of how we are to relate to authority, how we are to relate to the authorities around us, even when they're unjust like the authorities that Jesus submitted to were unjust. And this is difficult for us because our sin natures want to assert our own uh, self-will. We want to think like just the opposite of Jesus. Instead of asserting his deity, he was willing to restrict it. But we don't have deity. We're not at the center of the universe, but we want to act like we are. And that's the difference between arrogance and humility. Help us to think this through objectively in terms of our own thinking, that we can truly exhibit the humility of Christ in terms of right relationship to authority, but remembering that great leaders like Moses were great, but they were also rightly related to God's authority, and that's the issue. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.